Well, hello and welcome to Coffee House Questions. This is Ryan Polly. We're in a two-week series right now looking at the importance of church history, some of the classic Christian thinkers, and now this week looking at where some of these important theological ideas that we're discussing today, where they came from and who introduced it at the beginning. We're talking to professor and theologian Ken Samples. He is the senior research or a senior research scholar at Reasons to Believe and uh, the author of several books, including Christian Endgame, Seven Truths That Changed the World, God Among Sages, and the one that we're talking about uh, last week and this week, Classic Christian Thinkers. So, Ken, thank you so much for uh, taking the time and joining me again to discuss your book. Well, thank you, Ryan. I had a great time last week, and I'm looking forward to today's interview. Absolutely. Last week was fun discussing the importance of church history, why we need to be thinking about this, and then who are some of the defenders that you mentioned in the book. So if someone mentioned it, uh, can you list the nine people really quick that you focus on in your book, Classic Christian Thinkers? Yeah, the first three are from the era of the church fathers. So that would be the second to the sixth century, Irenaeus, Athanasius, and Augustine. Then two medieval Catholic thinkers, uh, Anselm and Thomas Aquinas. I then discussed the most significant Protestant reformers, Martin Luther and John Calvin. I closed the book by appealing to one of the great scientists, Blaise Pascal of the 17th century, and then C.S. Lewis, who I think is the most important Christian thinker of the 20th century. Perfect. And before we jump into some of the theological ideas uh, that are presented in this book and that these guys brought up, I want to talk about one more aspect of church history, and that would be the Reformation. I think that many Christians maybe uh, are unaware of exactly what's going on in the Reformation. Maybe they have the basic idea of kind of maybe that's where, you know, there's a split in the church. Uh, But what would you say are some maybe important key points of the Reformation that we should understand today? Well, uh, I think right at the heart of the Reformation are are really— two theological truths that sparked a third branch of Christendom. The first one is the importance of Scripture. Uh, Luther, Calvin, and other reformers defended the idea that Scripture is the supreme authority in the life of the Christian and in the corporate church. And that, of course, challenged thinking of the Roman Catholic Church that you really kind of have a triad of authority. You have uh, Scripture, tradition, and then the teaching magisterium, which is the Pope and the College of Cardinals. So scripture is the authority. The second doctrine that I think is right at the heart of the Reformation is that salvation is a gift of God, and it comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone, not by human works. And so there was a clash at the time of the Reformation about what saves us, who saves us, how are we saved? Luther, Calvin, and others argued uh, that we are justified by faith alone. It's not that good works aren't important. It's not that good works will not be part of the Christian life, but that God acquits us through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I think it's important, though, to realize that conservative Catholics, conservative Orthodox, conservative Protestants share a lot in common. All you need to do is look at the Apostles' Creed or Nicene Creed, and you realize the the broad orthodoxy and common ground that's there. But it is scripture and justification by faith that mark out the Protestant Reformation as distinct. 
Okay. So you mentioned last week also that, you know, a lot of times we focus on what we believe, why we believe it. There's kind of the apologetics, but we often don't focus on where these ideas come from. Where do we get these ideas and these beliefs to start with? And so kind of looking at now some of these theological ideas that are that are relevant today, that are discussed today, and kind of where they started. And it goes all the way back to Irenaeus, uh, the first thinker that you mentioned in the book, born around 130 AD, lived during the second century, and he is a defender against Gnosticism. Uh, so can you give a kind of a brief introduction of, of what is Gnosticism? Yeah, so by the second century, now Irenaeus is only one generation away from the apostles. He knew Polycarp. Polycarp was a student of the apostle John. Irenaeus battles the first major heresy of church history. Gnosticism is a word that means knowledge. And the Gnostics believed that, that matter was evil and spirit was good. And so salvation is essentially gaining secret knowledge uh, and having having a spiritual experience that would allow your soul to escape your body. But think about how damaging that would be to Christianity. If matter is evil, what does that do to the doctrine of creation? What does it do to the incarnation where Jesus is God in human flesh, in human form? How about the crucifixion? How about the resurrection? So this is one of the major challenges to historic Christianity called Gnosticism. Now, Irenaeus also, and this is a really cool thing that I learned as reading through your book, is I often, when doing a theodicy or response to the problem of evil, I will often bring up the soul-making defense. And you mentioned here that this was something that Irenaeus really kind of started from the beginning. So can you kind of uh, give your thoughts on what is this idea of soul-making and if you think it's a good response or not to why God allows evil and the problem of evil? Yes, and so theodicy relates to the question is, how do, can we understand God's power and goodness in light of the presence of pain, suffering, and evil? And this, of course, throughout the centuries, even before Christianity, this has always been a major challenge to God. Well, Irenaeus develops the idea that God uses pain and suffering and challenges in our life to develop our soul that uh, there, there are things in life, moral lessons and virtues that can only be achieved through deeply challenging times. Irenaeus no doubt has the Apostle Paul, Romans 5, that talks about you know, the idea that it's good that you undergo various trials and difficulties because that is the transformation of our character and so at first blush, it may look like, why is God letting this happen to me? Why am I surrounded with difficulties or, or suffering or see people I love go through pain? But Irenaeus developed the idea, and it's picked up by others, and it, and it has a core connection to Scripture, that God is often a, a therapist. He is working in our life to develop character and strength. And, you know, Ryan, uh, I'm— 60 years old, the most important things I've ever learned, I mean, deep abiding lessons, have always come from very challenging times. I love vacations. I love entertainment. But I never learn anything profound from them. And here's Irenaeus in the second century where there's lots of persecutions, and he's developing this theodicy of soul-making. And would it be similar, because in, in the way that I describe it in my talk on why God allows evil to students, is this idea of 
of that we can't understand the sacrifice that God made by his, the death of his son Jesus if we don't understand death, if we don't understand sacrifice. Uh, we can't understand how God forgave us of our sins if we haven't learned to forgive, and you only learn to forgive if someone hurts you. And so a lot of times the, the pain it teaches us valuable lessons. It teaches us what is true patience, sacrifice, forgiveness. And this then will allow us to fully, uh, more, more fully understand the goodness and the love and the forgiveness of God because of, of the difficulties that we've gone through. And we've learned just how stupid sin is here in this life. And so is that, a, is that similar to what Irenaeus is talking about here with this soul-making theodicy? Absolutely. In, in many ways, uh, you know, we look to Jesus, we look to his life, his life of suffering, his life of, of providing forgiveness, his uh, tremendous moral victory throughout life. We apply it to us. Absolutely. That I think you've said that very, very well. Um, you know, the Christian life is not an easy life. The Christian life is a challenge. And God cares more about our character than he does our circumstance, though he cares for both. So you describe Irenaeus in your book as a defender against false doctrine. And you talk about kind of that importance. And so what can churches do today? What can Christians do today to kind of help avoid false doctrines that are trying to affect them? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question. Uh, I think, first of all, uh, what we need to realize is that a lot of the doctrines that we hold so dear, uh, their, their roots are found in Scripture. But the practical defining of them, defending of them, the Trinity, Christ deity, the personality deity of the Holy Spirit, the atonement, these came throughout church history. And just as there were people who will challenge your faith today on the college campus or may even knock on your front door and present a different version of Christianity, that was true in Irenaeus' time. The Romans uh, persecuted Christians. Uh, the Greco-Roman worldview challenged different ideas about Christianity. I think churches can, uh, uh, you know, Yaroslav uh, Pelikan, one of the great historians, said the church is always more than a school, but the church cannot be less than a school. I think our churches need to be schools. We need to teach people about the faith. We need to teach them about historic Christianity. We need to help them to learn to communicate that faith to their kids, to their friends, uh, to, to various people. And so I think one of the reasons why we struggle as much as we do is our churches are not the kind of schools that they need to be. Now, the church is always more than a school, and it will always be, but it can't be less than a school. Yeah, and that's one thing I love about my church is the focus on on teaching. We have, we're going through right now an 18-week class on the doctrine of the Word of God, looking at the authority, sufficiency, and clarity of Scripture, and, and how do we understand that correctly? And and it, and it reminds me of the interview I did with J.P. Moreland on his book, Scientism and Secularism, of how we are being affected by secular and scientistic ideas and don't even realize it. And we're just kind of adopting it as Christians and not realizing the effects it has on Christianity. And kind of what you mentioned of, you know, we can kind of start to have this idea of Gnosticism. Okay, you know, yeah, the materials is bad, spiritual world is good, but then we don't realize how that affects the resurrection, it affects the crucifixion, the, the incarnation of Jesus, and the creation ex nihilo, and just so many different Christian doctrines. And so it's important to be grounded in Christian doctrine and right belief so that we know when something false is coming up against it. Very good. You also mentioned uh, with Athanasius, uh, you d we discussed a little bit last week about the idea of the Arian heresy and, and his uh, stance against Arianism. Uh, can you kind of describe a little bit what is Arianism? 
So a man named Arius of Alexandria began to teach the idea that uh, Jesus, uh, the son, is like the father, but not fully equal to the father in his nature. And so the father created the son and then through the son created everything else. And so this is a denial of the eternal deity of Jesus Christ. And uh, Nicene Orthodoxy, that is kind of classical historic Christianity, saw this as a deep challenge because what would happen if you uh, distorted the very nature of the person of Christ? Christianity is Christ. Christianity is rooted in the person, nature, and work of Christ. So if you have an alternative version, if you have a heretical Christ, that would change Christianity. And that's the point I make about heresies. Heresies aren't just minor differences. Heresies are so such a significant departure that they change Christianity into something it never intended to be. And one of those heresies is Arianism, uh, where it changes the nature of Christ. And we actually see that present today within Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah. And so uh, what is it exactly that kind of make a Jehovah's Witness different than Christianity? And then how would you go about having a conversation when a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door? What, what would be kind of a practical step to take uh, for the next time someone shows up at someone's door? Yeah, Jehovah's Witnesses uh, are really kind of a modern version of Arianism. So these heresies, they never go away. I mean, we talked about Gnosticism. Gnostic heresies still make appearances. Uh, Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code, for example. Jehovah's Witnesses are really kind of, they, they deny virtually every angle of the Apostles' Creed. So they deny the Trinity. They say that the Father is divine and the Son and the Spirit uh, are not divine. They deny the deity of Christ. They deny the personality of the Holy Spirit. Uh, they deny salvation by grace through faith in Christ. Uh, and so Jehovah's Witnesses are a group that wants to argue that uh, Jesus is like God, but he is not fully Jehovah God. I've talked to many Jehovah's Witnesses over my life, um, you know, many years ago, I worked at the Christian Research Institute with Walter Martin, and uh, I would talk with Jehovah's Witnesses. Ryan, uh, one thing that's been very helpful to me is to think through some of Athanasius's arguments. And, you know, I used to have talks with Jehovah's Witnesses, and they'd quote a verse, and I'd quote a verse, and it would go like a ping pong match all over and kind of get nowhere. Once I began reading Athanasius, I came up with a strategy, and that basic strategy is simply this. I say to the Jehovah's Witnesses, look, let's talk for 90 minutes. You get the first 30, I get the second 30, and then the third 30 minutes, we'll ask each other questions. When my time comes, I say, look, I think there are things that are said about uh, the God of the Old Testament. For their, for their use, I'll say Jehovah. There are things that are only true of Jehovah that are also true of Jesus, and therefore Jesus must be Jehovah. For example, in my book, I give four arguments, and I put them in logical form. I know you can appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> For example, I argue uh, only God can save people from sin. This is appealing to Isaiah 45. But Jesus saves people from sin, Matthew 1, Acts 4, Hebrews 2. Therefore, Jesus is God. If, if only God saves and Jesus saves, therefore, Jesus is God. I have found that nothing is foolproof. Uh, it's very difficult to talk to people who are involved in uh, religious uh, sects or cults. But I have found this the most successful. 
I convey to Jehovah's Witnesses that there are things in the Old Testament that are only true of Yahweh or Jehovah, but, but mysteriously, powerfully in the New Testament, those things are also true of Jesus, so Jesus must be Jehovah. I tried that one time, uh, in particular, I'm thinking of, uh, there were some uh, Jehovah's Witnesses that would sit outside of a coffee shop. Actually, this coffee shop that we started that then led to the idea of Coffee House Questions. Uh, I would have people come in to the coffee shop on certain nights and could ask questions and discuss Christianity, but uh, there would always be some Jehovah's Witnesses that would stand outside across the street in front of the university. And so one night I put together a list of all the divine prerogatives and the divine claims of Jesus and and how Jesus did things that only Yahweh could do, uh, showing that he's Yahweh. And, and uh, I went over to the Jehovah's Witnesses and I said, hey, I've been doing some research. I'd love to sh- show this to you and have you point out where uh, maybe I went wrong. And he looked at the very first line that says, Jesus claimed to be Jehovah. And he gave it back to me and said, I will not look at this piece of paper. And he refused to look at any of the claims that I, I had to make. Uh, but uh, that's so important is that what did Jesus have to say about himself uh, that you mentioned there? And, I, and I, think it's, I think it's helpful in talking with Jehovah's Witnesses to just really immerse yourself and them with Scripture, that you're not appealing to philosophy or apologetics. You're reasoning from Scripture and the words of Jesus. Yeah. So with Anselm, you mentioned his ideas on the ontological argument. I know this is a very uh, interesting argument. It's maybe controversial. Some people love it. Other people hate it. Um, could you maybe explain really quick what is the ontological argument that Anselm uh, thought up and what your thoughts are on that argument for God's existence? Yeah, Anselm is a medieval Catholic thinker. He's born 1033, dies 1109. And uh, Anselm becomes uh, a leader in the Christian church at the time. Anselm never calls the argument ontological, but it is an argument based on God's being. And so it takes on uh, the the definition or term, uh, the ontological argument. So Anselm is reading through the Psalms, and he is in Psalm 14, which says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So Anselm develops this argument based upon his prayerful reflection that that to argue against God is a fundamental error. And so he begins reasoning that if, uh, you know, God is a being than which none greater can be conceived. God is a maximally perfect being. He has all of these these attributes of power and presence uh, in their maximal terms. So God is a being than which none greater can be conceived. But if he is a being that is perfect, he must exist not just as an idea, but in reality. And and in, in a, a powerful sense, Anselm argues that there is a defeater in, uh, there is a logical defeater in atheism, because if atheism is true, it leads to the absurdity that you can conceive of something in your mind that is greater than the greatest conceivable being. So Anselm thinks that by thinking about God and reflecting upon his attributes, you'll be able to draw the conclusion that that God must exist. Hmm. So would you would you use this argument in uh, apologetic discussion, or would you figure out uh, would you f- focus on kind of maybe the more common column cosmological argument, design argument, moral arguments? Yeah, I, I, 
I think it is. I think it is a valid argument. There are different versions of it, as you mentioned. Some some Christians are critical of it. Other Christians approve of it. Thomas Aquinas, for example, was critical of it. Rene Descartes approved of it. Alvin Plantica, one of the most important Christian thinkers today, has a version of the ontological argument. Even in my opinion, even if it is not a proof for God, I think it does show the idea that a perfect being, a maximally perfect being is logically consistent. If that God could exist, it may well that he does exist. And so I wouldn't use the argument in isolation, but I would reason with people. And some people like the purely a priori type of reasoning. And so I think Anselm or a version of it can be used effectively. And I like Plantiga's version of it, and I do think it's good when, obviously, as you mentioned, when when used kind of as a, one of the many arguments that we have for God's existence provides that much more credibility to the things that we have to say. Um, jumping ahead a little bit, uh, because we do not have time to cover all these guys, and so you're going to have to get the book to see uh, some of their important theological ideas and how it's shaping us today. Uh, but you talk about Blaise Pascal, and I want to uh, confront maybe a little bit of a misunderstanding uh, with him, maybe, of what exactly is Pascal's wager. I think I've seen Pascal's wager misrepresented so many times, or any times you say, well, it's better to believe in God. Everyone goes, well, that's just Pascal's wager. Um, what would you kind of describe as being his wager, how it's been misunderstood, what are his true intentions and and uh, from that aspect? Yeah, I think it, I, I agree with you. I think Pascal's wager is misunderstood, and I think it's often applied in contexts that Pascal never intended. Pascal, by the way, develops early probability theory. So this is not an individual who's not aware of evidence, reason, facts. Pascal had lots of friends who were secularists. Uh, the major views of the 17th century in France were you were either a Christian Catholic or you were an atheist, but he knew a lot of science people who hadn't come down either way. They were kind of agnostic. They were kind of skeptical. They didn't know if God existed. Uh, they weren't sure if they wanted to put their trust. So Pascal uses the wager argument as kind of a, a cost-benefit analysis. He says, look, uh, something happens to us in death. Maybe that death will be the end of existence. Or maybe immortality will actually be a reality. Pascal reasons and argues that only by believing can we maximally win, can we ultimately win, and only by disbelieving can we ultimately lose. I don't think Pascal ever intended for this to be a standalone argument. I, I don't think he ever intended this to be a clincher. I think he meant it as just as you would think about your future, Think about your financial situation, purchasing a home. What are the costs? What are the benefits? Uh, how can I gain? What are the possible losses? But then Pascal introduces other apologetic arguments, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his fulfillment of prophecy, uh, the emergence of the historical church. So in many ways, the wager is intended, I think, to just kind of a shot across the pal, to challenge somebody and say, well, what are your what are your possibilities and what's in your best interest? I think if it's used in that way, it can be a very powerful argument, reason, particularly today by people who aren't sure where to take the first step. 
And I like two of the things that you mentioned here in your book of that he never intended it to function as a rational proof for God's existence or a substitute for evidences, uh, but he aimed it at specific at a specific audience, namely those who have opted to suspend judgment on the ultimate issues. And so really, again, it's it's not, oh, therefore, because uh, you, you gain everything from believing in God and you don't really lose much uh, compared to the opposite, therefore God exists. He wasn't saying that. Uh, it was saying, look, let's just stop and think about this for a second, right? We're being very apathetic in our culture. Let's just stop it and think about, uh, yeah, the cost benefit of the decisions that we're making and what makes more sense. And I it, think that's really good. And used in that way, what a powerful tool to to share with people. But as I write there, it's never intended as a be-all and end-all of apologetic reasoning. Yeah. Now, you do work at Reasons to Believe, which is a science apologetics organization. And so Blaise Pascal also focusing in on science. And I love what you've included here in this section of him of the philosophical preconditions of science. And I just want to kind of read what you have really quick and then have you explain uh, maybe why Christianity answers this better than a naturalistic, materialistic worldview. But you say that science, um, the preconditions of science are that the, it's the existence of an objective real world the comprehensibility of that world, the reliability of sense perception and human rationality, the orderliness and uniformity of nature, and then the validity of mathematics and logic. And so you say that these necessary suppositions of science are rooted in Christian theism claims of an infinite, eternal, personal creator who has carefully ordered the universe and provided humans with a mind that corresponds to the universe's intelligibility. And how this makes more sense than the atheistic or naturalistic response. Uh, can you kind of explain that really quick? Uh yeah, uh, the first point I want to make is that science is dependent upon certain assumptions, uh, philosophical, even theological in nature, that math and logic work, that there's a real world out there that we can trust our, our brain, our mind, cognitive faculties, and that there somehow is a congruence, a connection between our, our ideas and our mind and, and reality. Well, science isn't possible without those assumptions. So where does math come from? Where does logic come from? Why are we able to trust our mind? I mean, if, if our brains have evolved from purely natural processes, why should we conclude that we can trust not only our eyesight and our senses, but that our brain actually corresponds to logical thought? I introduced the idea that Christian theism makes better sense of that. It's not accidental. A mind comes from mind, reason from reason, rationality from rationality, that things like uh, universals, logic, mathematics, these require something that goes deeper than just the mere material physical universe. And thus, uh, the, the argument from reason reason, as people like Lewis and others would present it, make a lot more sense if there is a God who has all of these qualities, but in totality. Yeah. And from the naturalistic perspective, when you're talking about evolution, which is uh, uh, unguided, um, genetic, random genetic mutations being natural upon by natural selection, it, it, makes, hard, it makes, makes it difficult to see how that produces an, an intelligible, uh, consistent universe that we can observe and study and understand. And that's that's why the vast majority of people who have ever, ever lived on planet Earth have kind of taken it as common sense that God exists. Yeah, and that our universe is designed, which is why you now get multiverse theories and other things trying to explain away the design, because it, it right. just it 
it screams design of what we see. So in our last minute or so that we have here, um, the last guy you cover, C.S. Lewis, what is your favorite C.S. Lewis book that people need to go out and read? Well, when I was uh, a young college student, uh, my sister gave me a copy of Mere Christianity, and that book really changed my life. I I never knew that Christians could be so thoughtful, so careful. Uh, Lewis didn't preach to me. He kind of presented a vision or proposal of historic Christianity. I think C.S. Lewis, there's really three C.S. Lewis's. There's the author of the children's novels, Chronicles of Narnia. There's then the lay Anglican apologist and theologian who writes books like Mere Christianity, The Problem of Pain and Miracles. And then there is Lewis, the great uh, literary critic of Renaissance and medieval literature. I think Lewis is a person who speaks powerfully to us. One of the brightest people of the 20th century, one of the best read persons. Looks like he had a, a photographic memory. Uh, if you miss C.S. Lewis, you miss so much. And so he's one of my favorite Christian thinkers. Wow. Well, Ken, thank you so much for taking the time discussing the importance of church history, these classic Christian thinkers, and the theological ideas that they presented. Hey, it's been a great pleasure, Ryan. Good talking with you. Absolutely. And thank you so much for your work with Reasons to Believe and all the wonderful things you guys do there as well. Thank you very much. And finally, thank you to everyone who listened and downloaded the show. I really do appreciate it. Get yourself a copy of Classic Christian Thinkers, The Introduction by Ken Samples, and go to reasons.org for all the great resources that they have there. Also, this summer is going to be a really busy summer. With all my traveling, you can see my schedule at coffeehousequestions.com. But I'd love to get your thoughts, your questions, your insights, and your ideas for future topics for videos and podcasts. So you can always send those in at contact at coffeehousequestions.com, facebook.com slash coffeehousequestions, Instagram or Twitter at Ryan. I'm Polly 3 or text them in at 714-989-6927. And as always, if you've enjoyed this episode, I would love for you to share it with a friend or family member. Get the word out there, spread it with them, and also give it a rate on your podcast listening app if you so choose. Thank you so much. Have an amazing summer, rest of your day, everything you're doing. Sip coffee, think deeply. This is Coffee House Questions with Ryan Polly. Your love will guide my way.